We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel according to John. I've titled the whole series, The Message Became Flesh. I'm convinced that's the central theme of the whole gospel. John is telling us that God has communicated to us in Jesus in the ultimate way. That of all the ways God has chosen to make himself known to us, when God took on flesh and walked among us, that was the supreme moment in which God communicated to us. So uh, this whole gospel is about hearing what God has to say to us in Jesus. As I was preparing the sermon, uh, a song uh, that I used to sing back in the early 90s came to mind. So some of you who are a little older might uh, be familiar with it. Uh, Jehovah Jireh. Uh, Let me tell you the words of the song. It wasn't terribly long. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. His grace is sufficient for me. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. He will give his angels charge over me. Jehovah Jireh cares for me. That's Hebrew. Yahweh Yireh uh, means God provides. uh, God is provider. God's provision is a powerful biblical theme. It's throughout the whole Bible. And we're going to find it front and center in the passage we're looking at today. What I want you to think of as we're moving into this is what is it that Jesus has to tell us in this passage about the provision of God. We're in John chapter 6. We'll be looking at the first 15 verses. I've titled the message today, God Provides. Let's start reading verses 1 through 4. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee of Tiberias. Now a large crowd was following him because they were seeing the signs he was doing on those who were sick. But Jesus went up to the mountain, and he was sitting there with his disciples. But Passover was near, the feast of the Jews. John doesn't really connect this story to what happened previously. The previous story, he tells us, is about Jesus at, by the uh, pool of Bethzatha healing a man who's been a paralytic for 38 years, and then all the discussion that came up after that because he healed him on the Sabbath, um, and there were people who said he shouldn't have done that, and uh, he used that opportunity to teach a lot about himself, but that uh, is the last thing John's told us, and now we're not real sure how exactly this next event uh, is connected, other than that it happened sometime after. He doesn't say exactly how long. He just says after these things. It's a very vague kind of connecting phrase. Uh, But Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is roundish, so they kind of cross uh, across to the northeastern side from the northwestern side. And uh, it's interesting that John here is the only gospel writer who mentions uh, that this sea or lake was also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, and that's another little note, uh, those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, that might indicate that the Gospel of John was written later. Uh, because uh, the city of Tiberias was established in 17 or 18 AD by Herod Antipas, and it wasn't until late in the first century, really more into the second century, that people were calling the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias. So uh, the fact that John feels the need to clarify that means that he's probably writing this at a time when usage has changed and people are now calling it the Sea of Tiberias rather than the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Anyway, uh, 
there is a large crowd that follows him. And we're told in the other Gospels that what actually happened is when Jesus gets on the boat to go across, the crowds just run around the northern uh, side of the Sea of Galilee and meet him where he arrives on the other side. So they uh, follow him. And John tells us why they're following him. They're following him because they've been seeing the signs he's been doing on those who are sick. Now John is very... uh, careful in choosing what uh, miraculous things that Jesus did he tells us about. Uh, He doesn't uh, tell us these huge uh, lists of, you know, these events where Jesus healed everybody that came. Other gospel writers talk about that thing. John tends to focus on one person, like the paralytic or the man born blind, and a very, a very intimate approach to, let me give you one example of a life Jesus completely transformed. And uh, he doesn't uh, dwell on, on listing all of these miracles, but he's just told us of one uh, miraculous Uh, And obviously he's been doing many more. The people have seen this. And notice John likes to describe these miracles as signs. Jesus is not a Vegas performer. He's not just doing stuff so that people say, wow, I wonder how he did that. He's not just doing these amazing performances to wow the crowds. He's not even healing people as a demonstration of power to let people know how powerful he is. Although those are things that come with the signs he's performing. But John calls them signs rather than miracles because he's convinced that every single one of these times Jesus did something outstanding like this. He was trying to communicate something to us. The message become flesh was using these miraculous actions of his as teaching, as instruction, as a way to help us learn something important. And the people recognize that what they've seen do points to something more. And because of that, they follow him. I think they're absolutely right. That is what our response to Jesus should be. When we see that people who have come into contact with Jesus, there's something weird about their lives. There's something different, something enviable is going on in their lives and hearts. We should be drawn to that. What is Jesus conveying to us? And they do this. They follow around to see him. Jesus went up on the mountain, and I've said this before, a lot, oftentimes the New Testament writers are very generous in what they call mountains. If you've ever been to Israel, this is kind of the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. There's kind of rolling hills. Uh, you know, it's, it's not what many of us would probably call mountains, but the idea is he goes up on the hillside, on, on that hilly area today known as the Golan Heights, uh, and sits on a high vantage point where he can look down and see everybody. And we're told in the other accounts, and by the way, this is the only miraculous event that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Uh, all four Gospel writers felt that there was something so significant about this event that they had to include it in their Gospel. Uh, so he's uh, up there uh, on the mountainside and uh, surrounded by, by the crowd. We're told in the other Gospels that he teaches and heals them. Uh, John doesn't mention that. He's going to focus on something very specific about this event. Um, now notice this. This is a detail only John tells us. Passover was near, the Feast of the Jews. 
Before we dive into this story, this is what John wants to put in the minds of his readers. You remember that feast we celebrate where we remember that God took a bunch of slaves and released them from slavery and called them through uh, the intervention of the angel of death and protecting them from death, called them out of slavery and death into a whole new identity as the nation of God, as a nation of priests, a holy priesthood, a royal nation to follow after him. You remember that God? Well, that's the God who became flesh and who is about to do something. Think of that as you're listening to what comes next. I have a question from these first four verses. The crowd was drawn to Jesus because he had healed some sick people. What draws you to Jesus? I hope that's the reason you're here this morning. I hope you're not here to hear me uh, or to see other people. All those are great things, but uh, it's so much better if you're here because you're after Jesus. What draws you to him? Let's keep reading, verses 5 through 7. So Jesus, raising his eyes and seeing that a large crowd is coming toward him, says to Philip, from where could we buy bread so that these might eat? But he was saying this to test him, for he had known what he was about to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of loaves are not enough for them so that each should get a small piece. So, He's up there on the hillside looking down at this crowd, and we're going to find out later it's a really big crowd, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So we could be, it could be uh, as much as 15,000 people out there. Uh, who knows? He looks at the crowd, and then he turns to Philip and asks a question. You might think he's being sarcastic. Now, if, if I had asked a question like that, I'd be, I'd be being sarcastic, obviously. Uh, so where do you think we should get some bread to feed all these folks? Uh, obviously, uh, we might think this is funny, but surely something about Jesus' demeanor as he made the question didn't lead his disciples to think he was kidding. Uh, and John specifies for us, you know what, Jesus said this to test Philip. In terms of what he was going to do, Jesus already knew exactly what he was about to do. He didn't need Philip to give him ideas. He already had it figured out. So what is he doing here? Well, he's, he's asking a probing question to figure out, to allow Philip to ponder something and to uh, express and put out there what's really going on inside of Philip. We find out something about where Philip is at in his response to the question. And this is what Philip does. He looks out, scans the crowd, does some mental calculations, and says, okay, well, um, it would take 200 days' wages, and that wouldn't be enough for everybody to even get a little bit, piece, a chunk of bread, much less feed everybody. He does the math. 200 days' wages, what, maybe a little over $10,000 at minimum wage today? I don't know, something like that. I would assume that they didn't carry that kind of money on them. That Philip is saying, okay, well, here's the need. You're talking about feeding all these people. It would take a whole lot more money than we have. 
What's interesting about this is that that's not what Jesus asked him. He didn't say how much would it take to feed this crowd. He said, from where are we going to get what this crowd needs? From where? That's the question. Philip skips right past that and starts thinking about the problem and how to fix it. I, I feel sympathy for Philip. I identify with him. You know, we are presented with a need, and as a pastor in a church, I immediately start doing the math. Uh, what resources do we have? Uh, how could we possibly address the need with what we have? What do we need to mobilize or get going to address the need? I feel like that's exactly what Philip is doing. I think he's probably the guy you want on your uh, your event planning committee, right? You want the guy who can figure out the bottom line, what you need, how to get it done. But he kind of missed the whole point. Where does provision come from? And uh, if our answer to that, our gut reaction to that is, well, uh, how can I take care of it? I think that's the point of Jesus' question. Because Jesus is presenting Philip with something he knows Philip does not have the resources to address. From where will we find what is necessary to feed this crowd? And Philip can't see past, I can't do it. We don't have what we need. There's one other disciple that pipes in. Verses 8 and 9, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, There is a child here who has five loaves of barley and two fish, but what are these for so many? I kind of think Andrew uh, did a better job answering Jesus' question than Philip. I think Philip was stuck with, what can I do to fix? Jesus is asking me to fix this. How can I do that? Uh, I think Andrew understands a little bit more about what's going on here. And he says, okay, you want to feed the crowd. You're asking where we're going to get bread and uh, what we need to feed them. Uh, I'll just tell Jesus this is what we've got. Here's what we have. And let him take it from there. That's a better answer. I'm reminded of Isaiah when he had this glorious vision of God that shook him to his core. And after that, God said, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. I think that's what Andrew's doing. Jesus says, I want to feed this crowd. From where are we going to get what we need to feed them? Andrew says, all I've got is five loaves of barley and two fish. By the way, barley was the cheaper bread. Wheat bread was the expensive bread. And it wasn't even really Andrew's. Somehow some kid in the crowd showed up and said, you guys look hungry, you want my fish and my loaves of bread? So Andrew says, some kid gave me this. I've got seven things for you. I know this is nothing for what you're talking about. What are these for so many? 
This can't possibly address need. But guess what? Jesus, you want to meet the crowd's needs? I will put at your disposal what I've got. Take it. Do what you will. I think that's, we're, we're beginning to get where we need to be with this question. I have a question for you from these verses. When Jesus asked where provision could be found for the crowd before them, Philip calculated the need, and Andrew offered up what meager resources they had. Why do you think Jesus tested his disciples with this question? Let's keep reading. Maybe it'll become more obvious. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, numbering about 5,000. So Jesus took the loaves and giving thanks, distributed to those who were seated and the fish likewise, as much as they were wanting. And there it is. That's the miracle of the multiplying of the bread, of the loaves and the fish. Jesus has the people sit down. Three of the four gospel writers mention that there was grass. One of the gospel writers mentions that it was green. And John is the only one that says that there was a lot of it. Clearly it's like springtime, you know, Passover is near. Uh, we're in that time of year. The, if you've been to the Golan Heights, you know it's, it's lush. Uh, it's, it's grassy and green. And so this isn't southern Judah where it's all rock and dirt. Uh, this is, and it, it's a comfortable thing to sit down on. Uh, so there's grass, there's a lot of grass in the place. They all sit down. Jesus takes the loaves and gives thanks. Before he performed the miracle, he thanked the father for the food. He didn't thank the child. He didn't thank Andrew. He thanked the father. Why? Shouldn't he have thanked the child? Well, here's the point, I think, Jesus. Jesus is answering the question, from where? Where does provision come from? You might say, from that child. You know what you need before you can bake bread? You need flour. You need eggs. You know where flour and eggs come from? Flour comes from grain, and there's this miracle that happens. You take a little bitty grain and you pop it in the ground and some sunshine and some rain, which, by the way, you don't provide. And all of a sudden, that little piece of seed turns into this whole plant with a whole bunch of seeds that you can then dry out and grind and you've got flour. And there's this little thing with feathers that runs around and lays eggs which you didn't make and you take that and you combine them together we could not cook if God did not provide us with the ingredients we could build nothing if God did not put ore in the mountains and wood in the trees we could not construct a thing if God did not provide everything we need to do everything we have so Jesus answers the question, from where does provision come? Let's thank the Father for this bread and this fish. 
I think we often make the mistake of assuming that we have provided for ourselves. My sweat, my hard work, that's where it's all come from. And we don't realize that we're just rearranging stuff that God put in our hands. We're just moving it around. I did not make it. I received it. I like giving thanks. I try to remember every time I'm going to eat to pause and give thanks to God before I eat. Not because I think God's going to be angry with me if I don't. Not because I feel like I need to impress anybody. Most people are not impressed, surprisingly. Um, But I think I need daily reminders that it is God's grace that has supplied everything I need. And I have to remember to thank God because I need the reminder. God already knows. He doesn't need it. I need it. And Jesus illustrates that. Thank you, Father. So on that mountainside, on that hillside, God the Son lifted a prayer of thanks to God the Father for provision. And then he provided. He gave everyone all they wanted. Nobody went hungry that day. And when they were filled, he says to his disciples, verse 12, Gather up the leftover pieces so that none should be lost. So they gathered up and filled 12 baskets of pieces from the five loaves of barley which were left over to the ones who had eaten. I think a lot of times we uh, Anglo- Culture people read this and think, yeah, that's, that's the principle, waste not, want not, right? You don't throw away food. You put it in Ziploc bags and heat it up in the morning. You, you, you know, don't be wasteful. There are children and parts of the world that are going hungry and it's, it's offensive for us to be wasteful with what God has provided us with. That's, that's all true and I, I agree with that. We, we should not waste food. But I don't think that's all Jesus is talking about here. Have you ever wondered why God made us the way he did? Why do I have to eat every day? Why do I have to drink every day? Why do I have to breathe every second of my life? God designed me with built-in constant reminders that my existence is contingent. I don't exist in and of myself. I exist so long as there is air around me to breathe. And if I'm ever in a circumstance where there isn't, I will know very quickly my life is over. I will exist so long as there is water to drink and food to eat. I don't have any of those things in and of myself. I depend on things outside of myself to even live. God made me that way so that I would know that I depend utterly on him. That I would be reminded with every breath I take that it is his generous goodness that provides oxygen for me to breathe, water for me to drink, food for me to eat. Jesus says, gather up the pieces so that none should be lost. 
And it got me to thinking, if, if food is just a metaphor for something else, I need food, God provides food, is that all I need? Is this built-in reminder of the fact that I depend on God, all that my existence is about? Is human life reduced to eating and drinking? I hope you say, no. Surely God made us for more than that. Surely God provides more than just food. And what does the human being need? We need love. We need community. We need purpose. We need God. All these are things we desperately need. And I think Jesus here is illustrating his desire, the divine intent to supply lavishly everything we need. But don't hear me wrong. This isn't what the health and wealth preachers talk about. Jesus is not committing to feed your laziness and your self-centeredness and your self-indulgent approach to life. Jesus is not interested in making you worse than you already are. What you really need is to be restored to fellowship with the one who made you. What you really need is to be reunited with God in spirit. What you really need is to give up the war that sin has created between every human heart and every other human heart and finally know what it is to be in the hands of the Prince of Peace. I need to learn to love Not the self-centered, manipulative thing the world tries to pass off as love, but the real thing. I need to live my life for those around me. And I need them to do the same to me. I need community. I need purpose. Jesus says, gather up the pieces so that none should be lost. And if I start thinking in broader terms of what God provides for me, what Jesus has come to provide for me, I have to say, I'm not very good about gathering up the pieces. Let me share with you just a couple of examples of what I'm thinking. God spent 1,500 years of blood, sweat, and tears, working with an obstinate, difficult nation to give us the ultimate love letter. It took him 1,500 years to write the Bible for us. And it is the very Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Word of life. And how many times can we not be bothered to even open it up? It grieves me to know that there are Christians who have been in the faith for decades and have not once read God's book once, cover to cover, much less poured over it, become saturated in these words of life. 
That's divine provision that we may squander. Christ, when he returned to the Father, did not leave us alone. He left behind a body of believers that by the miracle of the Spirit's work in each heart found themselves bound together in a love more profound and genuine than the bonds of blood. And we became the first true family on earth. The family of God. How many times do we find Christians who can't be bothered to make time in their life for the fellowship of the saints? And you deprive yourself not only of the sweet communion of the family of God, but of the purpose and significance that comes when God, His Holy Spirit, empowers you to serve others the way He called you to. That's another way provision can be lost. Jesus came, God took on flesh, and went to the cross and bore upon Himself the full for the sins of the world. And he, he carried it to the grave with him so that we could be reconciled to the God we had rejected. The God who gives us everything. He gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And he says, now... You don't need to find somebody to get you an audience with the King of Kings. You can talk to him right now. You are granted audience any moment you want. How careful are we to make sure that gift isn't squandered? Is prayer even a part of our lives? Or does it just happen once or twice in a service on Sunday? Do we avail ourselves of the full provision Christ has made for us? How much of it is left to rot and be wasted? I think that's why Jesus said, gather it up. None of the provision should be lost. I have a question from these verses. Jesus, after miraculously making abundant provision to feed the crowd, insisted that his disciples gather up what is left so that none should be lost. How can we be intentional in gathering in what God has provided so that none of his provisions for us are lost? You might think the story's over, but John adds kind of a, a somewhat sour note at the very end that none of the other gospel writers mention. Verses 14 and 15. Therefore the people, seeing the sign he had done, were saying, truly, I'm sorry, this is truly the prophet who is coming into the cosmos. Therefore Jesus, knowing that they are about to come and seize him to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now the first part of this sounds great. The people recognize this is truly the prophet. Now that's a reference to uh, Deuteronomy 18.15. And Moses was very good about this. He was the beginning of God revealing scripture to Israel. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he was very careful uh, before he was done to let Israel know this is just the beginning. God has so much more to, to share with you. I just, I'm just getting it started. And he said, God's going to raise up for you a prophet like me. When he does, you guys had better listen to him. 
You need to heed what he has to tell you. And since then, Israel had been waiting for this prophet, this Messiah, this king. Jesus was that prophet. And all the early disciples interpreted it that way. They understood that the the guy Moses was talking about was Jesus. And the crowd is exactly right. They see this miraculous provision that only God could offer. And they say, this guy is the guy we've been waiting for. They're right. Here's where they're wrong. They had already decided what the Messiah had to do for them. They had decided what God's provision for them in the Messiah had to look like. And they had suffered for centuries under the boot of Rome. And the Romans, this far-flung, it was basically on the eastern fringe of the Roman Empire, just this little bitty strip of land that connected northern Mediterranean to southern Mediterranean. And only because of that was significant to the Romans. They wanted to be able to move their armies to Alexandria if they needed to. Uh, So they wanted to control it. But beyond that, the Roman interest in uh, Canaan was minimal. So they would send out people to run things over there. And uh, it was a notoriously difficult people to to govern over. And these pagans had very little understanding of what Jews were all about. They only worshipped one God. Nobody did that. And uh, they didn't like it. They didn't like being sent out to the far-flung fringes of the empire. It felt like exile to them. So they took it out on the people they were governing. And corruption was the standard operating procedure of the procurators. And they abused. And the people were heavily taxed. And they were sick of the Roman boot over them. They wanted to be free. And when they read in Scripture that God was going to raise up a king who would lift up the downtrodden, strengthen the weak, (coughs) and he would break down the high and mighty. They had already decided what this was going to look like. When the Messiah comes, he will raise an army, and we'll be happy to serve in it, and we will conquer the Roman Empire, and we will establish the government that finally gets it right. We'll have the right laws, and everything will be perfect. Well, it turns out that wasn't what the Messiah was going to do. I can suggest some reasons for that. You see, the problem with us is not government. It's not a problem armies can fix. Because even a perfect government will not fix me. Here's the, the real problem, is that the problem is each one of us. We're the ones who are messed up. That's the reason, in aggregate, governments are what they are. Because every little component of it is messed up. How do you expect the the whole thing together to work any better? The only way Jesus could solve our problem is to create an avenue where each individual on earth, regardless of station in life, regardless of circumstance, regardless of anything, would have the equal opportunity to be from the power of sin and death and to be initiated by the gift of the Spirit of God into a life of transformation whereby we can be restored to what we were meant to be. That's the only thing that can fix the problem. The only thing that's going to fix the ills of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not going to raise an army to fix it. You're not going to vote in the politician that's going to fix it. Jesus is the only one who's fixing it. 
And the way he's doing it is not by creating a big political movement and let's throw Jesus to the front of it. Yes, the right. I'm talking to you. That's not the way we change the world. We don't change the world. Jesus changes the world. Jesus knew what they were trying to do. What did he do? He left. He walked away. He went away alone. Not even his disciples went with him. I have a final question here. When people tried to make Jesus provide for them on their terms, he withdrew from them. What does it take for us to receive from Jesus the abundant provision he wants to make? I think this whole event is a communication of divine intent. I think Jesus was saying in this miracle, the sign was pointing to a huge truth. God wants to provide for everyone. And he wants to do so lavishly so that nothing is lacking. And by using five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000, Jesus illustrated powerfully the point that he has all the power necessary to do this. That's what the sign was pointing to. The problem is there's, even though this is what God has said I want to do, there are so many ways we can miss out on it. We can think we got it covered. I don't need Jesus. I got a good job. I'm reasonably content with what I've got. I don't need Jesus. I'm good. Well, if that's all you want from life, that's all you're going to get from life. And you, you miss out on what Jesus has for you. Or you can, like this crowd, you can receive something from Jesus and, and uh, squander the great majority of what he's put before you. And I've mentioned some things. He's given you a love letter that took him 1,500 years to write. You can squander that, not bother to read it or study it. Or permeate your heart with it. Surrender to its formative influence. You can neglect the community of the saints, the family of God, the life of service he's called you to, and the mission he has placed before you to serve the needs of the world. You can even neglect the provision of direct dialogue with him. Or even worse, you can try to take Jesus and force him into your little bottle and expect him to pop out when you rub it. You can try to make Jesus your little genie in a bottle so that he shows up and says, poof, what do you want? Poof, what do you want? Poof, what do you want? We can try to force Jesus to do for us what we want him to do. If we try that, though, that's when Jesus slips through our fingers. That's when he's gone. He's not going to play that game with us. He will provide for us what is needed. And sadly, what is needed for most of us is to learn to stop craving the things that are killing us. 
What is needed is a new heart. What is needed is a new identity, a new being. Jesus will provide miraculously something as amazing as that for you. But you have to let him give you what he's giving you. Not insist on him giving you what you want. Any who will lay it all before Jesus, who will join him in his mission, I am going to provide for the world. Anyone who does that will find from him the perfect, abundant provision only God Almighty can supply. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you look out on us, this mess of humanity that we are, and rather than disgust, you are moved to compassion, that you look on us and say, they need so much, and I want to provide it. God, help us to surrender to your provision. Help us to embrace it fully and to not squander any of it to treasure it and count every bit of it and give you thanks for it. And God, as as we do this, use us to be parts of what you are doing, meeting the need of the world. Help us be that holy city from which flows the river of the water of life who has the tree of life in its midst and has healing for the nations. Help us to be who you want to make us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.